Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 26. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do <laughs> who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as is there more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Then why have I been so very wise? And in my heart, and I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, is, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be the master for all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to, to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of God. Well, again, good afternoon. If you've been with us, you know that we're in our third week of Ecclesiastes. And if this is your first time with us, this is your first week in Ecclesiastes, but we're in our third week of Ecclesiastes. And if you've been here, you know that we've been um, looking at the book of Ecclesiastes using a metaphor. And that metaphor is that there is a sage, a wise man, a teacher known as Kohelet, who has been taking us down a long hallway. And this hallway has doors on both sides. And he's exploring these doors. Now, every door you go in, is a door in which you might ask the question, can I find meaning for my life in this room? And what Kohelet is doing is he's taking us in that room, giving us a tour of that room, and ultimately saying, don't look for meaning here. Don't look for ultimate purpose here. Don't look for ultimate life here. Now today, we're going in two more rooms. The first room we're going to go into is the room called Wisdom. We're going to ask the questions, what is wisdom? And can wisdom bring ultimate meaning to my life? Then we're going to go into the work room. We're going to say, can work give me ultimate fulfillment? Can it bring me total satisfaction? 
Can it be everything it, I want it to be? What we're going to find is that the only room you can find ultimate meaning and satisfaction in your life is the Jesus room. He's the only one that can give us ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose. So if I can roll with Chauncey's metaphor for a second. Imagine we're going through the hallway and we see a door and above the door it says wisdom. Now, it seems like if you're searching for the meaning of life, the door that says wisdom is like a promising one, right? Because wisdom is all about figuring out what's important in life. So we're, we're going through that door, walking into that room. We know that's the room because look at verse 12. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. In the next several verses, the teacher, the sage, is going to be helping us think about what's the difference between living with folly and living with wisdom. Now, first of all, we've got to start asking the question, what is wisdom? Because the word wisdom is used throughout Scripture, this Hebrew word chokmah in the Old Testament, and the Greek word sophia in the New Testament, and it's used in a lot of different ways. It's used, first of all, as an attribute of God. God is all wise. He knows all things. He understands all things. He creates and redeems according to his great wisdom. Second of all, wisdom is talked about in the Bible as something that's woven into the fabric of God's world. So it's the physical and even the moral structure of reality. But then we can talk about wisdom as something human beings can possess. Human wisdom means learning how to navigate life in a way that is in tune with the reality of God's world. Learning how to live with the grain of reality, but it's still more complicated. Because as we're going to see in a minute, human wisdom can be worldly wisdom, which is still a kind of wisdom, or godly wisdom. So this is all very complicated. For now, just imagine we walk through the door and inside, what do we see? Now, I don't know what you imagine, but I'm just picturing, since it's the 21st century here, that after we walk through the wisdom door, it looks like the self-help section of your favorite bookstore. Can you picture that? So there's bookshelves everywhere, and on the shelves are books by philosophers and books by psychologists and psychotherapists and books by coaches and books by successful business leaders, and they're all trying to give you tips for how to live your life. And there's some books by some spiritual sages, maybe even part of the Bible's on one of those shelves. And in this wisdom section, godly wisdom, worldly wisdom, there's all kinds of stuff about the meaning of life. What is it going to give us significance in life, ultimate significance? That's the question. Now, in the following verses, we're told several things. The first thing we're told very clearly is that wisdom is definitely better than folly. We see that, for example, in verses 13 through 14. Let's read those verses. It says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So wisdom is better than folly. And the point is made by giving this metaphor. A foolish person is like a blind person, no eyes, walking around in the dark, stumbling. You're banging your head against the sharp corners of life. You're falling into pits. You're just wandering. Whereas a wise person here is a person with eyes in his head. He can look around in the world, think about the way life works. This person is self-aware. This person plans ahead. This person makes goals and is skillful to navigate the obstacles of life to achieve goals. That's better. 
So the text makes it clear wisdom is better than folly. However, the text also makes it clear that no amount of human wisdom can save us from the big problems of life. And especially, the text is emphasizing, wisdom cannot save you from death. And wisdom cannot save you from that cycle of human existence that was lamented in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1 when I was trying to convince you this isn't a depressing book. I'm not sure if it worked. But this is a book that teaches how to live with joy and hope and wisdom within a broken world. But in chapter 1, one of the things that Ecclesiastes 1 said was, Hey, there's this cycle of human existence that happens to each generation. We're born, we live, we die, and pretty shortly after our death we're forgotten. Now, you can see this throughout this text, but especially, let's, let's pick up second half of verse 14 and read through verse 16. It says, And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then in my, I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. So, so what he's saying here is, Fools and wise people live very different lives, but there is one thing that happens to all of them, and that's death. Fools die, and wise people die. So, as we're trying to navigate life skillfully, wisdom is better, but we run into this brick wall called death that stops all of our progress. Not only that, but look what the text, how the text continues. For, as the, for of the wise, as of the fool... There is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So he's making this point. If we're trying to transcend the limitations of death by establishing some sort of legacy that will be remembered, recognize for most people, we're forgotten pretty soon after we die. But even if we're remembered for a while, say a thousand years, that memory won't last forever. The human race the, the, the planet Earth, unless something outside of our world intervenes, which it is going to, by the way, spoiler alert. But unless something outside of our Earth intervenes, this world is temporary. This little beautiful green and blue planet we live on, it's not going to be able to sustain our life forever. So we're going to die, and eventually everybody's going to be forgotten. Now, we can summarize what's being talked about here with two Venn diagrams. For all you visual people, i got a visual aid for you. We're going to put it on the screen. First, let's compare what this text says about wisdom and folly. So, here's a Venn diagram. Wisdom and folly. Now, in the center of the diagram, this is the wrong slide. All right, there we go. Wisdom and folly. Wise person and a foolish person. So, in this diagram, we've got two different ways of life. Okay? In the wise person circle, what we can see is that the wise person is self-aware. The wise person is reflective about where we're going in life. The wise person is in tune with the way things really are. The wise person makes plans and is skilled at achieving goals. So that's all good. Then on the foolish person side, we can see here that the foolish person is basically wandering through life cluelessly. The foolish person is not self-aware. The foolish person is out of touch with the way things really are, drifting through life. The foolish person is bad at achieving life goals and endures lots of pain from making poor decisions. Now, which one of those sounds better, wisdom or folly? Wisdom. But what Ecclesiastes is emphasizing is the overlap. 
Look what the wise person and the fool both have in common. They're both going to die and then be forgotten. Now, we could ask the question, what kind of wisdom is being talked about here? That's a question we should ask. Because if you were here last week, you'll remember that we saw that in the book of Ecclesiastes, whenever we see the word wisdom, we have to ask what's being meant. Sometimes when the Bible talks about wisdom, it means godly spiritual wisdom. Sometimes it means worldly wisdom. In Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11, we were talking about worldly wisdom because the teacher said, at this season of my life, I was very wise, by which he means I was shrewd, I was sharp, I was good at achieving my goals. But then he said, I laid hold of folly, and he, he went on to describe how he disobeyed a lot of God's commandments. So we can ask, what kind of wisdom are we talking about? Now, various biblical texts contrast for us what we could call godly wisdom with worldly wisdom. For example, I'm not going to read this right now, but if you want to study this more, just jot down this note. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. That's a text that contrasts godly wisdom with worldly wisdom. And it's a text that is going to inform the slide that's about to come up. Okay, so here we go. Here's the other slide. But this slide contrasts godly wisdom with worldly wisdom. Now, you'll notice in the center of the circle, they do have a lot of things in common. Both kind of wisdom involve self-awareness, being in tune with the way things really are, understanding how the world works, being able to make good goals and then being skillful at achieving these goals. So on the surface, the two look similar. And by the way, if you walk into your favorite, your favorite bookstore and go to that self-help section, most of the stuff over there is going to help you do those things I just said. It's going to help you be more self-aware, more mindful, more aware of what, how the world works and how to achieve your goals and all that kind of stuff. But the question remains, is it godly wisdom or is it worldly wisdom? Because if we look on the outside of these circles, we find the two are very different. Godly wisdom, as we saw last week in our reflection on Proverbs, godly wisdom is God-centered. It begins with the fear of the Lord, it culminates in the knowledge of the Holy One. Whereas worldly wisdom is self-centered. As a result of being God-centered, godly wisdom makes us sensitive to the sacred dignity of every human being. So that if we have godly wisdom, we see people as having inherent dignity made in the image of God. So we treat people with compassion, love, justice, fairness. Worldly wisdom, on the other hand, because it's self-centered, it tends to see other people basically as tools that I can use to help me accomplish my goals in my life. Therefore, the two lead to very different results. Worldly wisdom is still able to help you, for example, to become successful in your career or make a lot of money or have some fun in life. But as we saw last week, the, the, the pleasure that worldly wisdom gives diminishes over time and it's replaced by growing emptiness which can give way to despair and death. Not only that, according to James 3, the ultimate fruit of a life of worldly wisdom is disorder in every vile practice. On the other hand, if you live a life of godly wisdom, you get the joy of knowing God. And not only that, but you live a life that produces the result over time of righteousness and peace. Shalom. So which one of those sounds better, worldly wisdom or godly wisdom? So we've got a simple equation here. Wisdom is better than folly. Godly wisdom is better than worldly wisdom. But look back to the center of the diagram. The person who's wise with worldly wisdom and the person who's wise with godly wisdom 
still have this in common. They're going to die. And then they're going to be forgotten. So this raises for us the question, what kind of self-help can self-help help with? Right? What could self-help really do for us? If we learn to navigate life wisely, even according to divine wisdom, as we find it in the scripture, what can it do for us? And the answer is a lot, but we still run into this brick wall called death. So now we've got to stop and think about this issue of death. Ecclesiastes, together with the rest of the Bible, wants to shape the way that we think about the huge theme of death. And I want to suggest to you here that there's three main strategies for death, for for dealing with death that are floating around in our culture, and that they are all bad ideas. And we can we can contrast a biblical view with them. Let, Let me give them to you. Here's one way of dealing with death in our culture. Avoidance. You just avoid thinking about it. So we sanitize life. We hide the bodies, we make the bodies look like they're not dead, and then put them away quickly when people die. But most of the time, we try not to think about death at all. And so we consume, and we buy things, and we entertain ourselves, and we amuse ourselves to hide from ourselves the fact that we're going to die, because that makes us terrified. Now, what does the Bible say about that? Ecclesiastes is going to say, that's a bad idea. If you want to be wise, you actually need to spend some time in the house of mourning, because if you don't think about the end of life then you're not going to understand everything that comes between birth and death. So that's a bad idea. A second way of dealing with death in our culture is a sort of morbid obsession with death, which you can see, for example, in our popular movies and our popular TV shows in which murder and suicide and gruesome, gory fascination with death is everywhere. Once again, the whole Bible and Ecclesiastes in particular, I think, points us a different way. Because even though Ecclesiastes keeps putting in our face the reality that we're going to die, that keeps happening because the sage is saying, I want life. God is the God of life. He's the God of joy. He's the God of peace. So I think he would say our, that morbid fascination with death is perversity. It's another symptom of a, a broken world. A third way of dealing with death that happens in our culture Sounds better than the other two. And it's basically saying, let's accept and embrace death as a natural part of the circle of life. So you just do your best to live a good life, and then you die, and it's very natural. And your body goes into the ground, and it decomposes, and then the worms eat your body, and, and the birds eat the worms, and something eats the birds, maybe a bigger bird, I'm not really sure. Something about the life cycle. I remember this was in biology. And eventually it gets to the grass again. We should have started there. And the cows eat the grass and you eat the cows. And here you go, the circle of life, right? And we can sing about it. That's what the Lion King is all about. (laughs) Let's celebrate the circle of life. Well, Ecclesiastes has a couple of problems with that. In some ways, that's like partially true and beautiful. But Ecclesiastes has a couple of problems with that. First of all, there's this like existential angst in Ecclesiastes that says, that's nice for the, the worms and the birds and the next generation, but I'm still dead. So that's a problem for me. If I think about the self, but there's a bigger theological conviction, which is that God is the God of life and that because we're made in the image of God, as as the book's going to say later, eternity is written in our hearts. Every human being has a longing for eternal joy, for eternal rest, for eternal peace. And so we experience that death is a problem. As a matter of fact, the rest of the Bible confirms that death is this human death is a symptom of sin. And it says that the last enemy Jesus is going to defeat is death. Okay? 
So the, the Bible has a different way of viewing death than, than all these ways that we just talked about right here. And a, as we think about this, I think that the writer of Ecclesiastes would say less that death is a beautiful part of the life cycle. And what he would say would be something more like what the, the famous Welsh poet Dylan Thomas said. You remember his famous poem, poem about death? What he said is, do not go gently into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. He's shaking his fist at death. He's saying, I'm for life. So death is a problem. That's kind of like what we have going on in Ecclesiastes. He's saying death is a problem. Death is a problem. And like so much of Ecclesiastes, this text is raising questions that it doesn't quite answer. Elsewhere in Ecclesiastes, there's moments where the sage says, because God is the God of life, because he's a faithful God, I trust that somehow God's going to intervene in a way that heals the wounds of the world, in a way that even deals with death. But the hope in Ecclesiastes is not quite clear because Jesus hadn't come yet. The prophets of Israel began to see the God of life is going to resurrect the dead. And then when Jesus comes, we see the the ultimate answer to the questions raised here. You see, self-help can only take us so far. If we ask the question, what kind of help can self-help help with, if self-help could help self, the answer is it can take you so far in your life, but where self-help runs out, we find God is our helper. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and on the cross he bore our sin and he bore our death and then he rose victoriously from the grave so that everybody who trusts in Jesus Christ can be forgiven and reconciled to God and can share in the hope of resurrection. If you want to understand how that begins to transform life, we need a different poet. There's an English poet named George Herbert, who's even wiser than the Welsh poet we quoted a second ago. And George Herbert wrote a a poem called Death. And it's, it's a beautiful poem filled with spiritual wisdom, but it's also a funny poem. And here's what he says in the poem. He says, I looked death in the face. I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing here. I looked death in the face, and here's what I said to death. Death, you used to be really ugly and really scary. You were like pale and your eyes were sunken in. And when we saw you, it freaked us out because we were thinking about what was going to happen to us 10 years after you came for us. We were going to be decomposing in a grave and that's terrifying. But now our Lord has come and he died on the cross and rose again. And that event put a little color back in your complexion, death. So that instead of seeing you as an enemy, now I'm learning to see you almost as a friend. Because when you come from me, I can entrust my body, half of me to you. Because my soul is going to be with Christ, which is better by far. And then one day, Jesus is going to return. And my body will rise glorified with Christ in a new creation. So that as a Christian, when I lay down to sleep, whether my pillow is down or dust, I can have peace because I know Jesus is going to wake me up in the morning. If I were in my pew, y'all, I'd be, I'd be jumping. Come on. <laughs> and this, this is the beautiful reality that what Ecclesiastes is going to do for us is going to set up these false hopes and then show us how they don't actually satisfy, which leaves us longing for the actual satisfaction and the only true hope we have, who is Jesus. Amen. That's it. That's it. He's our only hope. Now we're going to leave the wisdom room and we're going to step into the workroom. Now, I know many of us have jobs that we love, and many of us have jobs that bring a lot of meaning to the world, a lot of meaning to our lives, but this room, like a lot of workrooms, is pretty toxic. In fact, what he's going to say about this room is, about work, is I, I hated it. 
It brought me despair. It's a great evil. It kept me up at night. It was full of sorrows. It was vain. That's what it's going to say. And what Ecclesiastes is helping us do is to think about work on this side of Genesis 3. But to understand what what we're talking about, this side of Genesis 3, we've got to go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to see where this is coming from. Now, in Genesis 1, we learn some things about work. Genesis 1 and 2, learn things about work. The first thing we learn is that God is at work. The first thing we see when we open the book of Genesis, the first page of the Bible, we see God at work. God is a worker. He's engaged in creative work. He's, he's bringing order to chaos. He's making people in his image. God is at work. The second thing we see is that God then gives work to people as a gift. Mm-hmm. He gives it to us as a gift. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to Work it and keep it. This means that in the Garden of Eden, in a world that is uncorrupted by sin, Adam has work to do. He has work to do, good work to do. He's got to prune, he's got to dig, he's got to plant, he's got to cultivate this garden. He's got to work to cultivate the good creation that God has made. So work started with God and work is a good gift of God to people. But in Genesis 3, we find as Adam and Eve rebelling against God, they try to find meaning apart from God, and they sin. And this sin has significant implications in every aspect of their lives, including the area of work. So we read in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. If you have your Bibles or your smart devices or whatever, I encourage you to turn there. Genesis 3, 17 through 19, we read, what happens to work? Verse 17, we read this. And to Adam, God said, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So when Adam and Eve sin, God curses the ground, and work then becomes significantly more difficult for them to do. They would still enjoy the fruits of their labor, but it would come through pain, it would come through toil, it would come through sweat, it would be exhausting, it would be frustrating. Now I know, again, that many of us in this room love our work. We believe that God's called us to do the work we've called, we, 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 we're doing. But I could, I might ask for, well, I could ask for a show of hands. Uh, for how many of you has work ever been, maybe sometime in the distant past, has work ever been toil, exhaustion, difficulty, frustrating? And <laughs> we'd all say yes, and we wouldn't be alone. In 2017, Gallup did a study in which they collected data from 155 countries across the world. So a worldwide study. And what they found was that 85% of employees, workers worldwide, find their work, they either say they're either not engaged 
or actively disengaged in their work. Now, not engaged means I come to work, but I'm not really all there. I'm, I'm, I'm there in body. I'm not really energetic. I'm not really excited about being there. I'm not engaged. Now, actively disengaged, this is where you come in and you actively express how unhappy you are in your job. This is toxicity. Now, 85% of people are in one of those two categories. Only 15% of employees worldwide are what they would say is highly involved in and enthusiastic about their work and their workplace. In other words, for most people in the world, work is exhausting, it is toil, it is frustrating, and it's not something you're supposed to get excited about. So we find the sage in Ecclesiastes 2 in that same place, right? Look at verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Verse 22, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? I put my whole heart into this. I give all my effort to this. And what do I get? Verse 23, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. You ever been frustrated with your work? I think Ecclesiastes knows, this sage knows what you're talking about. But what this guy says is something that may be a little bit surprising in the fact that if you ask the question, what makes your work so vexing? Kohelet? He gives us the answer. Look in verse 18 and 19. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that, here it is, I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. See, this guy is he's working. He's even working with, with wisdom. He's not being a fool. He's working with wisdom, and yet he's still saying, I am totally dissatisfied with this because I can work, I can, I can get fruits of my labor, and what I'm going to have to do is leave it behind to somebody else to come behind me. Look, he repeats it in verse 221. It's because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. He says, what makes toil so vexing is that even if I work my whole life with godly wisdom, I'm still going to die. And I'm going to leave everything I work for to somebody who don't deserve none of it. None of it. Now, we see this play out throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, if you read Kings and Chronicles, what you're going to see is a king inherits a kingdom. And they may even walk in the ways of the Lord. But they're going to die and leave their entire kingdom to somebody coming after them. And often, more often than not, that son is going to walk in folly. Mm-hmm. But we don't have to just look, to look to just rich kings about this. I mean, this happens with you and me, too. If I'm an entrepreneur and I build a business, when I die, I got to leave that to somebody. And I don't know if they're going to be a fool or a wise person. I can even engage in really good missional activity. I can start a school. I can start a community health organization. I can teach kids. I can work with my hands to make places beautiful. And still, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave it to somebody that 
may totally waste everything I've earned. He says, this is vexation. Mm -hmm. This is annoying, suffocating. (laughs) So, work is in these verses totally difficult. Which makes us ask the question, so, so what kind of work can, can our work do? If it can't bring me a legacy where I live past my, my death, then what can it do? Well, in these verses in Ecclesiastes, the only answer we get is a negative answer. It says it cannot save you from death. It cannot bring ultimate significance to your life. It can't do those things. In fact, our work never was intended to work like that. No human work can save us from death. Only a divine work can save us from death. That's right. Only a godly work, mm-hmm. a God work, mm-hmm. can save us from death. See, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who came and accomplished a work, and that work was to save you from your sin. You trust in him, which will ultimately save you from from death. And what Jesus does is he offers to us salvation. He offers to us life after death, not by any work that we could do, but by a gift of grace. He offers it to us freely. If you will just... Trust in me. Receive this gift. You can have eternal life forever. So our work can't save us from death. It can't save us from that vanity. But Jesus can. That's beautiful. And already we've seen Ecclesiastes has raised some important questions for us. We, we asked, what good is wisdom? And the answer came back, wisdom is better than folly, but it can't save us from our big problems of sin and death. And now... Chauncey just asked us, what kind of good can good work work if good work could work good? That's it. And the answer was, here, it can't save you from death. Still can't solve the big problems in life. Now, both times, what this led us to do is just dwell in the gospel. Who can save us? Human work can't save us from death. Human wisdom can't save us from death. Only the work and wisdom of God and Jesus Christ can save us in death. We could stop there, but we're not quite done yet. We're almost done. But this raises the question, so should we mess with wisdom and work at all? Why not just trust in Jesus and stop there? Is all work and all pursuit of wisdom just totally pointless? And Ecclesiastes says no, because here's the deal. If you try to get ultimate meaning and significance out of your life and to transcend death with wisdom, with human wisdom and with human work, it's not going to work. Only Jesus can do that. But if you trust in God to be your only salvation, if you trust in Jesus Christ to be the only center and the ultimate source of identity and and significance and the only hope of resurrection in your life, now work and wisdom come back to you as the gifts that God intended for them to be. I want you to look at the last couple of verses of this passage and see how the sage says this. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, this sounds a lot different than everything Shanti was just saying. Because a second ago, the sage was like, I hate work. Work's horrible. 
And now he says, the greatest gift for, of God from you is to enjoy your work. What, what does he mean here? What, what he's saying is this. If you try to depend on work to give ultimate meaning and significance in your life and to transcend death, it will fail you and you'll hate it. But if you trust in Jesus to do that, now all of God's good gifts, including food and drink and work, come back to you. Here's what that means practically. When you leave here today, there's still no telling what's going to happen in your life. What's going to happen in the world when the vaccine is coming? We don't know any of that. But because Jesus is on the throne, you can go eat a wonderful dinner with your friends and enjoy it as a good gift from God. And then tomorrow morning, most of us are going to work up and go to work one way or another. For some of us, the work's in the home. And what you're going to do is change diapers and read books to a toddler tending that little mind. And uh, you may be doing some laundry. And what you're doing is nurturing and cultivating vulnerable life in a world filled with chaos and death. Other people are going to go to work somewhere else where you're going to flip hamburgers to feed hungry people. Or you're going to make lesson plans to nurture young minds and and to shape them academically. Or you're going to balance a budget so that everybody who works for your business can get paid and feed their families and take care of them. Or you're going to sweep streets so that the world will have a little bit more beauty and order and health and a little bit less ugliness and chaos and death. Whatever kind of work you're going to do, if it's honest work, what Ecclesiastes is saying, this is a gift of God from you. This will not save your life, but God's going to do that anyway. Receive this. It's a, it's a, gives you dignity. It's a gift from God that you could contribute to the world. So enjoy it and do it with all your heart as unto the Lord. The last verse of the text says it like this. For to one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Here's what I think that verse doesn't mean. I don't think it means if you make God happy, your job's always going to be super successful and you're going to make a lot of money and get to keep it. But if you don't make God happy, you're just going to make money for other people and they enjoy it. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think what it is saying is this. The fool that tries to find ultimate significance in the wrong places will find all of life, including work, to be nothing but constant vexation. And they will toil and they will toil and they will toil. And all the fruit of their life, they'll never enjoy it. But God's going to give someone who pleases him the ability to enjoy it. But for the person who confesses their sin and says, God, you're my only hope. For that person, God says, I will save you forever and now I want you to see, receive the gift of every moment as a gift from me to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. At the end of the day, we want to notice this pattern that is going through all of our reflections on Ecclesiastes, which is this. If we try to get ultimate meaning, ultimate significance from any of God's gifts, it's not going to work. Only God can give ultimate meaning, ultimate significance. If we look for significance in money, it's not going to work. Look for significance in relationships, it's not going to work. Look for ultimate significance in pleasure, it's not going to work. Look for ultimate significance in your work, it's not going to work. Only God can do that. In fact, if I look for meaning in other places, it's going to disappoint me. I'm going to be left empty. It's going to be vanity. But if I trust in Jesus and if I allow him to be the center of my life, then everything else in my life can help bring me joy and freedom and purpose, but it's, it's in light of him and who he is. I'm about to say a prayer for you as, as we respond to the word of God by taking the Lord's Supper. And, and here's the truth, the reality that's embodied.
for us in, in this celebration of the Lord's Supper. Your core identity and your ultimate destiny do not depend on how smart you are, how wise you are, how skilled you are, and how work is going. Isn't that glorious news? Instead, your core identity and your ultimate destiny depend on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Which means if you're here and you're spiritually seeking but you haven't trusted Jesus, you should really turn from sin and trust Jesus right now. And if you have trusted Jesus, your identity is you're a beloved child of God. Nothing can separate you from his love. And he has a hope of joy beyond your wildest imagination waiting for you. And from the vantage point of that future, you'll be able to look back and see how in his wisdom and his perfect plan, every little act of obedience in your life really mattered. So with that in mind, let me say a prayer for you. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We love you. And I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit for all of us here, Lord. Help us to lay down all of our idols, including the idols that we've made out of your good gifts. Help us to depend on you alone. And as we come, give us humble hearts. Give us hearts of repentance. Bless the bread. Bless the cup. Give us grace to believe the gospel and to receive Christ rather than self as the center of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.